an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor, the, nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, peace be with you. <laughs> what a joy it is to see you all this evening and um, to, to be with you all. Uh, this morning, uh, I had a, uh, a medical issue um, as I have a chronic illness that sometimes catches me off guard and, uh, and causes some pain and causes me to, uh, to, to stop whatever I'm doing. And so that happened this morning. Uh, the situation was taken care of and I'm feeling a lot better. So I appreciate you all uh, for giving grace. I appreciate Sojourn and just uh, our pastors, our medical team and, and everyone who uh, just just love the body so well, and I'm really blessed to be here with y'all tonight. Um, in case you are guests here, my name is Jamal, and I am one of the pastors here at Sojourn Community Church, and I have the joy of serving alongside another, uh, some plurality of pastors and leaders here, and it's my joy to be with you. Today is Next Step Sundays, and what that means for Sojourn is this is a time where we like to, uh, as we start the fall off, emphasize uh, what it looks like to be plugged into this church, uh, both for members and areas to serve and areas to grow for non-members. So uh, you'll be hearing more about that at the end of service outside in the uh, art gallery. We have opportunities for you all to get connected. For the next three weeks, we'll be emphasizing Next Step Sundays. And our hope is that every single person here uh, would uh, feel at home at this church, we'll get plugged into this church, um, and begin to use your gifts, your God-built-in, God-given gifts uh, for the flourishing of God's kingdom and for hu human flourishing in general. So we just want to encourage you guys to, to get plugged in and to do that. Well, in the spring, we started a series, and the series was about our core values as a church. Uh, we, as pastors, got together and we prayed and we got with about 50 members to say and to find out what are the, the handful uh, of things, what are the six things that we are willing as a church to go to war for, that we're willing to kind of stake our flag in and even die for. And it may seem like a dramatic language, but that's, that's what we were really after. What is it as a church that we feel like is essential for us to be faithful uh, to the gospel and to uh, fulfill the Great Commission. And we came up with six core values. Uh, one is biblical faithfulness. Two is uh, gospel-centeredness or gospel centrality. Three is transformative relationships. We believe that relationships matter, and we want this to be a place where 
people uh, are transformed by our relationship. Four is creativity in the arts. Uh, we wanna be a church that celebrates the arts and creativity. And fifth is relentless mission. As a church, we wanna be known for being relentless in our mission. When Satan knocks us down, we wanna be able to get up and continue to pound at hell's door uh, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the kingdom. And by answering and by forming these values, we, in essence, we're ans uh, answering the question, uh, like, what are we about? What are we for? Well, today we're gonna start a new series that I'm stoked about. Uh, and the question we wanna answer in this uh, series is not just what are these values, but who are we as Christians? Who are we? Uh, because who we are uh, flows from what we value. And what we value is, in, in essence, it flows from who we are. And in answering who we are, we want to go to the Christian identity. As Christians, we know that our identity is found in Christ Jesus and Christ alone. But we see in Acts chapter 2 and with the early church that within that identity in Christ, there's also some other identities that we get from him as his people. And the first identity that we want to emphasize this week is, is the identity of a worshiper, the identity of a worshiper. Now, when we think about worship, all kind of things come to mind, all kind of pictures might come to mind, depending on how you were raised and, and what that word kind of triggers or means to you. For some of us, when you think about worship, you think about hands lifted in the sky and you think about uh, uh, people in church and you're in a particular place, a particular locality, and you are worshiping Jesus through expression. Uh, that's what some of us think about. For others of us, when we think about worship, it's not necessarily maybe us just with our hands lifted up, but it's a, a, a style of worship, right? Uh, some of you guys grew up hearing a song, here I am to worship, here I am to bow down. You're all together love, you're all together wonderful. If I could sing, I would sing it right now, just blow y'all away, I can't sing. Somebody once told me that I sung in the key of Z. I thought that was a compliment only to find out there is no key of Z, right? It's not. <laughs> um, so I, I sing off key. Uh, but we think about a particular style of worship, maybe contemporary worship. Others of us, we think about maybe traditional worship like hymns. In the 90s and mid-90s, we uh, came to find out what was called these worship wars where people were arguing and fighting in churches over what type of songs we're going to sing. And perhaps you grew up in a church like that where there was a traditional service and a contemporary service and the people who liked one sort of music, they didn't really like each other, right? That's what comes to mind when you think about worship. For some of you and for some of us, it's just confusing when we think about worship because we hear people say that um, worship is something we do when we gather together, but you also hear people say, you know, worship isn't just about when you gather, it's all of life. Well, the question that we want to answer today as we talk about our core identity, as we, as we think about these things is this, is which is it? Like what is true worship? Is it an expression or is it all of life? And to get to the bottom of this question, we're going to look at John chapter four. And what we'll learn today is this, is that the gospel has made you and I into worshipers and that worship is all about God. The gospel has made you and I into worshipers and worship is all about God. My hope is, is that uh, all of us will leave this place cherishing the gospel and worshiping God, both when we gather and when we scatter. So what I want to argue today is that worship isn't just about uh, expression. It's also about, uh, about rhythm. 
It's, it's also happens is when we when we gather together, uh, we don't start worshiping. We continue on our worship from when we're not together or when we're scattered. And to do so, as we look at John 4, we want to see this touching and beloved Bible story um, as Jesus is ministering to a woman at a well. Now, what's interesting is, is in context of the book of John, um, uh, this woman is kind of put uh, uh, in, in the opposite light or the opposite picture of a man by the name of Nicodemus that we meet in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, we meet Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a religious leader. He is a male. He is well-respected. He is moral. Um, He comes to Jesus uh, at night. In John chapter 4, we meet a woman who is nameless. She's probably, uh, more than likely, illiterate. She's religiously compromised. Uh, she uh, is the, the, the exact opposite of everything we learn about Nicodemus, uh, this immoral woman who is really struggling. And yet we see that Jesus is going to encounter her to teach her about worship because she was, her worship was distorted. Um, her, her worship was uh, inversed. Her worship was not uh, the way that God would have it to be. Now, many times we hear this sermon preached and it's preached about cross-cultural evangelism. And I believe that one of the main thrusts of this text is cross-cultural evangelism. I think that that is a faithful application of this text. However, I believe that the main point of this text, when you look at John chapter 2 through John chapter 4, is this. Is that the messianic age, it cannot be confined to old Judaism. And that the new age brings with it a new universal offer of the gospel. Now, that may seem like a lot, but in essence, what I'm saying is this. John put this passage and orchestrated these stories, told these stories in the order that he showed them, in order to, for his Jewish audience and for the audiences to read to say that Jesus is doing a new thing. That the gospel and this good news is not just for the Jewish people that the gospel and the good news is for everybody and that Jesus is turning everything upside down. He is breaking cultural barriers. He is breaking cultural norms. What do you mean by he's breaking cultural barriers? Well, Jesus, a Jewish rabbi in this story is going to sit and spend time with the Samaritan women. See, there was beef between Jews and Samaritans. A long time ago, right after Solomon ruled, there was a breakup between northern and southern Israel. And the Samaritans went north, uh, Jews went north. And after the Assyrian captivity, we see these Jewish people who went north and they began to intermingle with Gentile people. They began to take on their culture and their norms. And the other Jewish people in Israel uh, began to uh, uh, look down upon them. There became this huge political, social, and ethnic kind of breakup between these two groups. In fact, the Samaritans uh, stopped worshiping in Jerusalem. They set up their own worship camp. And because they were so bitter at the Jewish people and how they were being treated, they started worshiping on their own mountain and only reading the Old Testament or the Torah. So that's the backdrop here. Now, verse four of this text says something interesting. It says that Jesus had to go to Samaria. And the reason that this would have caught the early reader's eye is Jews did not go through Samaria. 
even if uh, uh, to get to wherever they were going, they went around. They would take a, a couple days trip around Samaria so that they can avoid these Samaritans. That's how thick the beef is. But it says he had to. And the reason he had to go to Samaria, to Samaria is because he had a divine appointment with a woman who was broken with the woman who was ostracized, with the woman who was going to come to the well at 12 o'clock noon at the hottest time of the day because she is living in shame and probably ostracized from all of her community. This woman goes to the well when no one else is going to be there in the heat of this arid, rigid day because uh, no one else wants to be with her, but there's one who wants to be with her, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus came for people like her, despite her ethnicity, despite her social uh, political alliances, despite the fact that she has been married five times, and as Jesus exposes and reveals in a prophetic way, and the person that she's shacking up with now, is not her husband. Despite all of these things, Jesus sees through that. He sees a soul that is longing for connection, a soul that is longing for true love, a soul that is distorted and that is broken. And he says, I have to be there. And there's some here today that you came tonight because you're in the same place. You feel unloved. Perhaps you feel ashamed. Or perhaps you, you don't even know what you feel, but you know that you're restless. Augustine said this. He says, until your soul finds rest in the Lord, you will always be restless. And perhaps you're here on a divine appointment tonight. And I pray that this divine appointment is to, for you to help you to see what true worship is. So Jesus pulls this woman out of false worship by doing two things. The first, he's going to use an object lesson to help her to see a spiritual reality. He's going to use an object lesson to help her to see a, a spiritual reality. Now, she's at the well, and while she's at the well, she is, of course, going to get water. Jesus is going to begin to talk to her about what he calls living water. Now, at first, she's going to think, and she's confused, because she's like, you don't have a pail. You don't have anything to draw water with, and yet you're trying to offer me water. But Jesus wasn't talking about natural water. In the text, he was talking about spiritual water. He was talking about spiritual water. He's telling her, that this water that I have to give you, it's, not, it's, it's living water. It's living water. In fact, when Jesus talks about the spiritual water, He's referring to Jeremiah 2 and 13 and a picture of water as an object lesson for all of Israel in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, living water represented cleansing, spiritual life, and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, we read this. Jesus says, for my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, Yahweh says. The fountain of living water and dug cisterns for themselves. Crack cisterns that cannot hold water. And that's what this woman had done. We don't know why her marriages didn't work. She stayed in a very patriarchal uh, society where men often use and abuse women. And it could have been that these men in this village, in this area, kept using and abusing her and they would divorce her and she would go from person to person looking to find fulfillment. That could have been it. But whatever it is, she, she probably is, 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 is in search for that. First John chapter four, verse one says, God is love. 
But as you guys often know in our culture and probably in your own life that you've experienced that reverse where love becomes God, where you begin to believe that the most important thing is you being loved by another human being. Perhaps that's what's happening with this woman. Jesus sees her. He loves her too much to leave her there. And so this text is going to teach us three things about worship. Uh, specifically, we're going to look at the first two things about worship. Then I want to speak to Sojourn specifically. And the first thing is this, is that we're always worshiping something. So in verses 17 through 26, what we read, we see that Jesus turns the conversation to a spiritual conversation. And he's ministering to her at that level. And that this woman, when she recognizes what's happening here, she's going to try to like Yahweh juke him. Y'all ever been Jesus juked? That's when somebody realizes that the conversation is spiritual and then all of a sudden they try to like talk the Jesus language, even though you sense that they really don't know much about Jesus, right? Well, that's what she's doing to Jesus. She's trying to Jesus juke Jesus. So he's bringing up this spiritual conversation and she's like, oh yeah, I'm spiritual. I'm right with God. In fact, my ancestors, we worship at this particular place. We worship at this particular mountain. And in essence, what Jesus is going to try to show her is this, is that worship is not place-centered. That all of life is worship. That's his main point. All of life is worship. Look at the text. He says this to her. Jesus told her, Believe me, verse 21, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. So God used the Jewish people, um, set them apart so that the rest of the nations can have a light and a way to him. But an hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And so what Jesus is trying to show us is all of life is worship. It doesn't just happen in a place. If you think that worship happens and begins when you come here on a Sunday morning, you don't understand what worship is. Worship is ascribing or giving supreme worth to someone or something. As Christians, we believe and know that worship is us giving our whole heart, our whole lives to God by saying that, God, you are worth it. You are worthy. And that's a continuous act. When you wake up in the morning, you're worshiping. When you uh, go to work, you're worshiping. When you tie your shoe, you're worshiping. You never cease to worship. Your heart is always saying that something is supremely worth it. And then this text, that's what uh, it is emphasizing. David Foster Wallace taps into this when he writes this. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. 
and you will need even more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so forth. You're always worshiping. You're always worshiping. And here's the thing, back in the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis tells us the danger of misplaced worship. God creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in a, a perfect scenario and situation. And he calls them to exalt him with his life, to, to allow their life to be lived in relationship with him, to bring him glory. Adam and Eve, rather than worship God, they worship themselves just like we do. In Romans chapter 1, verse 23, it says they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds and animals and creeping things. And Adam and Eve, rather than worship God in his glory, they chose to worship themselves in their glory. In fact, today, as uh, the church and those who are outside of the church, we are often tempted to do the same thing. We're tempted to worship sex. We're tempted to worship self. We're tempted to worship science. Uh, some of us believe rather than submitting to God's word that we're going to see what science provides or comes up with and whatever science and provides it comes up with, that's going to be the way we think rather than allowing science to submit uh, under the word. And so for some of us here, we're like, no, there, God could not have created the earth because scientists say they theorize that there is a big bang. They theorize and they say that there is this, this macro evolution and we, rather than submit to what God has said, we submit to what science has said. Now, I believe in micro evolution. Uh, I believe that that works in with God and all the things that he created, but the Bible has spoken about creation and I submit to this word and to the Bible because God has spoken. Some of us, we worship the state. We worship government. We worship a nationality or a people. But true worship is not these things. True worship is found when we place it in God and God alone. And that's what this passage is, is getting at. That's what Jesus is getting at, is that you're, you're always worshiping. And we want to be careful not to come into Sunday saying, I'm going to worship. You're not going to church to worship. You're going to church to continue worshiping with God's people. <laughs> You are continuing in worship. You are worshiping whether your hands are up or they are down. Seeing worship as an expression or a religious checklist is, is broken, and it can only offer a brief interruption to an otherwise sin-ravaged life of false worship. Her seeing this worship taking place on the mountain was her having a brief interruption in her otherwise sin-ravaged life, and that does not bring glory to God. Second, we must worship in spirit and in truth. Our identity as worshipers is found in spirit and in truth. Now, now look at this context. She points to this mountain, and her religion literally is symbolic. She is living an immoral life, but where she finds her hope is in the symbol, is in this mountain, is in traditions. It's actually, this mountain represented political and, and, and social uh, pride and ethnic pride. 
She wasn't worshiping Yahweh, this God who created all things. She was worshiping, in essence, her, her tribe's version of God. Her tribe's version of God. And Jesus loved her too much. He says, no, true worship happens in spirit. What does it mean to worship in spirit? Well, in verse 23, it shows us that to worship in spirit is first to worship the Father. It's the first thing Jesus says, those who worship the Father. Listen, worship is God-centered. Our identity of, uh, uh, as a worshiper is us seeing that God is both the object and the subject of our worship. God is both the object and the subject of our worship. And we want to be careful to, 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 to make sure that we are not the subject of our own worship. We want to be careful to make sure that our worship isn't man-centered. That our worship isn't just about our emotions and our feelings and our best life now. That our, uh, that our worship is on God. First four words in the Bible is in the beginning God. The Bible is not a book about how Jamal can find satisfaction and, and, and pleasure and things that Jamal wants to find satisfaction and pleasure. The Bible is about how God created the heavens and the earth, how God created a people for himself to worship him, how God is supremely better and higher than all things, and how this perfect, holy, omnipotent, loving, gracious, good, immutable God has chosen to save some so that we can experience eternal joy and satisfaction in in him and how true joy and satisfaction is found in him and him alone. God is the object of our worship. Amen. Amen. Not only must we worship the Father, true worship is worshiping in spirit. He goes on to say that, that God is a spirit in verse 24. And what does that mean? It means what we've been talking about. That God is omnipresent. And that worship isn't just happening in a place in the same way worship is happening all the time in spirit. But third, to worship in spirit is to glorify God through the spirit. In John chapter three, Jesus is talking to this religious leader, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is trying to figure out what does one have to be, do to be a disciple of Jesus? And Jesus blows Nicodemus' mind. He says, well, to be a disciple of Jesus, you must be born again. Nicodemus gets confused. He's like, what do you mean be born again? Can a man enter into his mother's womb a, a, a second time? And Jesus points uh, to Nicodemus to the Holy Spirit. He says, no, being born again is, 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 is the Spirit's work. It's the Spirit regenerating. It's the Spirit taking a heart of flesh, a heart that is cold, a heart that is dead, a heart that is self-focused. A heart that is worshiping false idols, false things, false narratives, false worldview. And it is the Spirit softening our heart and allowing this gospel message to be implanted in this soil that the Spirit has softened and given us life, a heart of flesh. And it's through the Spirit. The only way to worship God is what I'm saying is through the Spirit. <laughs> it's by being indwelled by the Holy Spirit. By being indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And honestly, this is what Jesus is doing in John chapter 4. The Bible is so fascinating. I'm, I'm telling you. The Bible is so fascinating. John chapter 4, Jesus begins to talk to this woman about this living water. And uh, she begins to see, and he's talking about this living water. And it's amazing how she begins to capture this picture because of this salvific paradigm, because of this objective lesson. Like she starts out calling him sir. 
And then from sir, she says, uh-oh, he's a prophet. So now she's calling him a prophet. And then from a prophet, she starts saying, you know what? This man is a little more than a prophet. He might be the Messiah. And then after Messiah, she concludes by the end of the story that he is the savior of the world. The only way that someone can come out of seeing somebody as a sir to a savior is through the spirit. I'm going to say that again. Amen. The only way that somebody can come out of seeing Jesus as a sir to a savior is through the work of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus does this by pointing to living water. Now, here's what he's doing in John chapter 7. Listen to how fascinating this is. Jesus is at a big festival, big Jewish festival. Thousands of people from around the world is there. And here's what Jesus has to say. It says, on the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus is there by divine appointment again. Don't miss that. Jesus stood up and cried out. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the spirit. For the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. When Jesus is talking about this living water that will well up on the inside of this woman, he's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit that will one day come. And what Jesus is saying, listen, lady, worship is not about a place. Worship is not about even the system that God set up. The system that God set up is not the end of worship. The system was meant to be an objective lesson so that you all would have a, a, a lesson that said when sin happens, someone has to die. It was never about these root religious uh, 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 habitual things that you were doing. It was always about the heart of what was happening and it points you all towards this lamb who will one day be slain towards you. And the only way to worship this lamb is not to worship him in his place by, by just religious habits. The way to worship him is to worship him in your heart. And the only way that you can worship him from your heart is if you've been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. He says spirit and truth. What, do you, what does he mean by truth? I'm glad you asked. To worship in truth means to worship according to God's revelation in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. To worship in truth means to worship in God's revelation in and through Jesus Christ. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, I am the way. Jesus is bold all throughout the book of John. He's just like, I am. <laughs> I am the bread of life. I am. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, which means that God does not receive our worship when it's outside of Christ. The only way that God the Father is pleased with any human being is through his son. There is no other way. There's no other way. More relativism, I'm just going to blame that on my sickness earlier. Y'all so silly. <laughs> it, 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 it has no place. It has no place. Saying your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. There is one truth and that truth is true truth. And Jesus is that true truth. And for some of us, that's what we believe. We believe that there's many ways up the mountain. And you say, you know, my way up the mountain and what I believe is through Jesus Christ. And that's how I get to God. 
And for others, it may be Hinduism, it may be Buddhism, it may just be uh, transcendental meditation, it may be uh, all these other things. That's your way. Well, the Bible says that there is only one way because the God who is proverbially up on top of the mountain sent his son down the mountain to pave a very specific way. And the only way back up that mountain is on his back, clinging to him as one who is helpless and who cannot save himself. And to reject his way up the mountain is to reject eternal life. Jesus uses this phrase in verse 10. I just can't get away from it. Look at this, verse 10. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God, that'll preach by itself. Salvation, he's saying to this woman, is not your works. It's not your religious worship. Salvation is a gift from God. And Jesus is telling her, I am that gift. And someone here today, you think that that you're curious about Christianity and perhaps you're saying, one day I'm going to commit my life to Jesus when I get myself together, when I have something to offer God. I want to plead with you and tell you today that you will never, ever be able to get yourself together to to come to Jesus. The only way through Jesus and to Jesus like this woman to see yourself as broken is to see yourself as exposed and uncovered, is to see yourself in the presence of a Savior that says it's not about what you can do or what you have to offer. It's about who I am and what I have done for you. And it's a gift. It's God's grace. It's free. You can't earn it and you don't deserve it. And that is what's behind our worship is understanding that we can never do anything and never could do enough to earn God's blessing, to earn God's favor, but that Christ has done it all for us. God became a man and he died on the cross. He suffered for you. He entered into your suffering. He entered into your pain. He entered into your brokenness and he took it all upon himself, your sin at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart was rolled away. It was there by faith. I received my sight and now I am H-A-P-P-Y all day. Only Jesus can give that joy. Hebrews chapter one, verse one through two says, long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. She points to the prophet Jacob. Say, are you, are you greater than Jacob? And Jesus kind of just lets that answer slide. He's, he's probably thinking like, actually I am. I kind of put them together. <laughs> long ago, the God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. To worship in spirit is to worship through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is a gift from God and according to God's revelation of Jesus. Third, the gospel shapes how we worship. Really quickly, uh, turn with me uh, to your bulletins. You have a, a chart in your bulletin. Because this is really important. I want to kind of tell you about Sojourner's DNA and what we value. Uh, before we do, let's put this, this uh, in fact, we'll, we'll go to this first. So you'll see two categories, gathered and scattered, okay? Here at Sojourner, we believe that place is important. Worshiping with God's people 
expressing yourself in community to God in a biblical way and how God has, has shaped and formed you is important. So we do believe church is important. By saying that, that worship happens wherever you are, I don't want somebody to walk out of here and be like, great, because on Sunday when the NFL starts playing, I'm going to worship God from my couch. No, uh, the Bible puts emphasis on worshiping with God's people. And this is what we call sojourn, sojourn. we call it, it, it gathered, sojourn gathered. And our worship services are actually, you may not know this, are actually based off of the rhythm of the gospel, okay? Before we come to Christ, we build up all of the sin, all of this, these habits. Our hearts are disoriented. And now being a disciple of Jesus is learning to worship God and allowing God throughout your life to reorient your heart to be in right relationship with him and to learn how to live in a life that's pleasing to him. And the way we do this is through the good news of Jesus Christ. So on Sunday morning, when a pastor comes out, like Pastor Luke did so wonderfully today, and he gives a call to worship, a call to worship is when we speak the word and we respond to God's glory and grace. So that's when we first opened up the service, a pastor came out, he pointed us to the word. And then after that, we did a call to confession. Uh, Johnny led us today uh, in a confession where we just confessed our weaknesses, our weaknesses and the fact that we're sinners. Then after that, we normally do a song or even have an, a pastor come up around the offering and give us a word of assurance. And that is a word where we receive God's promise and we remember that though we are weak and though we are sinners, that we are not condemned. And as the Bible says, if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and we are affirmed as his children. After that, we do what's called a passing of the peace. And you all did that where you talked to strangers and to newcomers and to each other. And then we take time to hear God's word preach. And after hearing God's word preach, we take the Lord's Supper together, which re reminds us week in and week out of Christ's sacrifice for us and how much he loved us enough to be broken in our place. And after the Lord's Supper, we sing a song. And I want you to listen today. That song, the songs that we sing are normally songs about commitment and also to get us ready to leave this place and to live on mission. So every Sunday we go through the same rhythm. And the reason why, the reason why is because habits are important. Knowing the gospel, preaching the gospel to yourself is important. We believe that the gospel is what transforms us. And in essence, this movement is a gospel movement. And so when we come here on Sunday morning, it is reforming us. Jay, uh, uh, K.A. Smith says this in his book, You Are What You Love, a phenomenal book. The church, the body of Christ, is the place where God invites us to renew our loves, to reorient our desires, and retrain our appetites. The church is the household where the Spirit feeds us what we need and where, by His grace, we become a people who desire Him above all else. Christian worship is the feast where we acquire new hungers, for God and for what God desires and are sent into his creation to act accordingly. And the reason I believe that this text is a picture of this woman coming to faith in Jesus is because of that last sentence. We see this happening with her. It doesn't necessarily say that she, she does, but it implies she does. It says this, 
Christian worship is the feast where we acquire new hungers for God and for what God desires and are sent into his creation to act accordingly. At the end of this chapter, we see that this woman meets Jesus. She leaves her jar where it was. She runs back into town with the people who has ostracized her and had talked about her and laughed about at her. And she begins to witness to them. And she says, come and see, I met a man. I met a man. And that's what true worship does. That's what happens every Sunday when we gather. Our hearts should be standing up. Even if it's, if, if it's through communion and us reflecting and taking that meal together, and we should be able to go out into the world and look at people and say, I met a man. But scattered. This is what worship looks like in our day to day. Look at that second part. See, each moment of your day as an opportunity to respond to God, no matter the circumstances. This is what it means to worship God in spirit and truth. Cultivate an awareness of your sin and a need for grace in all of life and all of your relationships. Learn to preach the assurance of the gospel to yourself and to others. This is a key practice. Listen to me. I had to do this today. Uh, Today, in the middle of my sermon, I had to stop as I was under excruciating pain. And I'm going to be honest, went to the back, was kind of just unable to move. I felt all this this shame and this embarrassment come upon me. And I began, and my wife knows that. I hate public attention, especially where there's a lot of people and there's like this weakness and and whatever. And she looked at me and and she just kind of nodded and just like, don't even let your mind go there. She knows how I process things. And I begin to preach the gospel to myself. That it's not about being strong. It is through your weakness that you are made strong. It's not about what other people perceive of you. And if you're embarrassed, Christ sympathizes with you as he was stripped naked and embarrassed on the cross. Your identity is not found in what other people think of you. It is secured in this God that you were preaching about today. And this is what it means to worship God in our day-to-day, to learn to preach the gospel, is to seek out opportunities to hear God's word. It's to share life with other believers. It's to share meals, to share struggles. It's to share a hope of the cross when you gather. It's to invite others, Christians and non-Christians, to live out the invitation of the gospel. It's to fill your relationship with the presence of Christ and to seek to live those you encounter, to leave those you encounter uh, feeling blessed. So what does it mean to have a worship identity as a worshiper? It means that we eagerly come together and even if that means limping and hurting, regularly together, setting our eyes on God and regularly practicing these rhythms that we see in the Bible so that our hearts can be strengthened. It means when we leave this place, we don't leave saying, I'm leaving worship. We leave saying, I'm about to continue in worship this week and make much of God. We do this not in our own strength, but through the Spirit's power. We do this as God's weak vessels who shines his light through us so that he can get the glory. And every Sunday when we gather, we take this meal together called communion. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks. And he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And the same way he took a cup and said, this cup is a new covenant of my blood shed for you. Christian, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Here at Sojourn, we take a piece of bread. We dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine. 
whatever your conscience permits. And again, this is, this is a part of our worship. This is a part of us uh, continuing to live uh, as a living sacrifice to the Lord and continue to come back to what matters most. This helps every Sunday to reorient our hearts. John, uh, Jonathan Edwards says that, Jonathan, uh, John Calvin says that our hearts is a factory of idols. Communion helps us to put to death those idols week in and week out by reminding us of who deserves our worship. Hey, if you're not a Christian today, rather than take this meal, I wanna invite you to put down your jar today. To put down that thing that is separating you from a relationship with God. Perhaps it's self, perhaps it's the pleasure of, of, of sex, Perhaps it's science, perhaps it's state, perhaps I don't know what it is. Whatever that thing is that you're holding on to and that you think is supreme and that will satisfy you, you and I both know that you have to keep coming back to that well over and over and over again because you remain unsatisfied. Jesus says, I will quench your thirst. You will have an opportunity to be satisfied in me. And that's what he offers you today, eternal life. Those of you who are at the front half of the room, come to the front to take communion. Back half of the room, you go to the back. Gluten-free communion is over to my left. Let's pray.